The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ricky, production lead here at the II. And I'm Darcy, and I work in the editorial team here at the II. Today we've got a head-to-head for you, philosophy versus science, featuring Professor of Theoretical Physics, Marika Taylor, and philosopher Julian Pagini. This took place in 2022 at the How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy festival that we produce here at the IAI. Darcy, how did this head-to-head go? This kind of idea obviously takes root from, I think it was inspired maybe by the Hawking debate when he says philosophy's dead and like in face of obviously the advances in modern science, kind of what is the purpose of philosophy in a society that's driven by scientific advancements. I think perhaps maybe there's a little bit of a false dichotomy painted, both kind of disciplines obviously have their root in natural sciences, natural philosophy, and both are like immensely useful, but you know, obviously at different levels of abstraction, I think. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what our speakers say about the different disciplines and how they pick it apart. I think it's gonna be a great debate. Is philosophy useful? I think on the level of our kind of social, political, economic institutions, the kind of moral, ethical, like legal frameworks, yes, to some degree. It's also, you know, having a kind of critical awareness about one's environment, kind of a critical attitude in general. I personally think the world would be a better place if everyone was like made to study philosophy at like GCSE level at least, maybe uh, A level. Yeah. That's in the UK. And you want to obviously eradicate all STEM. (laughs) (laughs) No, I do not want to do that. Yeah, I guess philosophy, but also I just think it's just like critical studies. I think that we're we're living in an age where we need people to have critical faculties. And I think, unfortunately, our education system is not endowing people with those faculties in any degree. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. So let's hand over now to the host of this debate, the wonderful Ganesh Taylor. My name's Ganesh Taylor. I am a scientist. That is my confession at the start of this debate. And we are here today to discuss the differences or the similarities between philosophy and science. So from Pythagoras to Planck, history's greatest minds have seen science and philosophy as inseparable. But since the Enlightenment, the two have been wrenched apart, apparently, with neither finding much use in the other. It's time to change that and to put them head to head. Please join me this morning with prize-winning physicist Marika Taylor and also our luminary philosopher Julian Bagini as they bring together two fields that should never have been separated. 
So that's our official introduction. I think I like to, perhaps because I'm a scientist, I like to start with definitions. So I wonder if we could start by defining what is a philosopher and what is a scientist, just to kick us off. Well, historically, there, there wasn't a distinction for a very long time. That is correct. So if you look, Aristotle, for example, did all things, and he actually conducted a lot of observations in a lagoon in Lesbos when he was doing his biology. Aristotle's biology, it's very fashionable to laugh at it because, of course, it was very naive, and he said some strange things about how I think snakes didn't have testicles because, obviously, they were slippering against the ground or something like this, you know. And, he, and he's famous for being wrong. But actually, you know, he, he was doing very early biology. He did it in a scientific way. Descartes dissected animals unfortunately, often alive, because he didn't believe they had souls. Um, you know, Spinoza ground lenses. A lot of the great philosophers of history were doing empirical work, which we now think of as science of a fairly basic kind. Um, and even to this day, the Royal Society, which is the UK's, you know, major professional body for philosophers, their journal is still called Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of London. And the term natural philosopher... I don't know the exact date it came in. I think it was like a 19th century, 18th century idea. This was the beginning of the separation. You know, thinking of certain types of philosophers as being particularly concerned with the natural world. And that's what developed the idea of the scientist. Now, where we are now, I think, is I think now the distinction in practice in general is quite clear. But that doesn't mean that there's no overlap and no separation. So the crudest way I'd put it is crude, but I think largely accurate, is that scientists are primarily involved with the empirical investigation of the world using measurable methods, statistical methods. It's all about observation and facts and extrapolation from that. Philosophy is generally dealing with those questions that are left over when you've done that. So, for example... Scientists may want to investigate patterns of cause and effect and try and work out what causes what, et cetera, et cetera. But it remains a kind of philosophical question to a certain extent. What is causation? What actually is causation? What do we mean by causation? Now, these things are obviously not totally disconnected. But I think you'll find that if there's a question which scientists can answer without any, and there's no remainder, you don't need philosophers. The problem we got, and I'll stop here, is that because there's this overlap, there is a bit of kind of a tendency of territory, territorial grabs. And I think there are some science, some scientists, certainly not all, believe that the remainder that's left to philosophy is basically insignificant or nothing. So you have scientists pronounce on things like free will, right, overconfidently, because they think there's no philosophical questions left. You understand the causal effects of the world, and that just means there's no free will, end of story. And that haste to kind of assume that there's nothing left to say once science has done its work is a cause of a lot of this perception that there's some kind of conflict between scientists and philosophers. It's interesting. Marika, what do you think as a, as a scientist? So I, I agree with, I think, much of what Julian is saying. Our modern perception of what a scientist is is still very much based around you do a particular experiment, you know, analyze it, and then you see how that fits your, your, your theory about the world, whether that's a theory about chemistry or biology or physics. But now in terms of the overlap with philosophers, where would you put a mathematician who is actually not driven by trying to describe the natural world they are actually driven by much more abstractly creating a sort of discovering. Do you create mathematics? Do you discover mathematics? That in itself is a philosophical question, surely. And 
if you were, say, a theoretical physicist, already Einstein at the beginning of the 20th century, he didn't have access to experiments to test his theories. So he was actually doing thought experiments, Gedanken experiments people have heard of. And that, again, becomes almost, there becomes some overlap with philosophy in terms of what you can assume, what your starting hypotheses are. And I think that's very much for me where that interface comes. I agree very much with Julian, actually. So when you have people thinking about things like the beginning of the universe, there's inevitably going to be some things which cross over into philosophy. I would absolutely not declare them personally as unimportant. I think they're incredibly important. But that's again, so you can get to a certain point, you can take the data that you see and you can test your theories of the early universe, but then there'll be some question, how did it start off this way? Is there, is there a possibility? How did, you know, if there's a choice between possible universes, how is this choice made? And those types of questions start to have philosophical consequences. And that's where I think there should be more dialogue actually between scientists and philosophers. Yeah. Is there anything you immediately want to come back on that? Well, no, I think that's true. It's interesting that um, Sabine Hossenfelder, the uh, physicist, wrote a book recently, which is like Physicist's Answers to the Big, to the big Questions was the, the headline. And, uh, you know, she was talking about the early universe thing. And I think that's true. Now, I mean, she makes the comparison, which I thought was quite an interesting one. People are very critical of a lot of creationists quite rightly, I think, for having these th completely fantastical theories about the origins of the universe. And I think they're completely non-scientific in a sense. They're not based at all on any scientific data at all. They're completely speculative. So I think she overstates the point about the comparison with this science. But she's saying once you're getting science to hypothesize about what happened before the Big Bang, because in terms of what is observable, the Big Bang's as far as we can go, right? In a strange way, we can observe the Big Bang. Correct me if I'm wrong, because we can observe its after effects. We can't observe anything before that. So as soon as you go before, you are in the realm of speculation. Now, speculation is fine. It's good to do some philosophizing about it. It's interesting. And sometimes, I don't know if this is the case. Again, the physicist will correct me if I'm wrong. It may be the case that sometimes what starts as speculation, which you, you, initially you, you have no idea how you might test it, over time, perhaps someone thinks, actually, do you know what? I've got a way of testing that and it could become scientific. But I think that the point is that fringes of science like that, you are going beyond science in that straightforward, we're just following the facts, we're interpreting the evidence. You're doing some kind of speculation and you're using a lot of philosophical tools. I think the, the key one is, the, and it goes with the thought experiments as well, which is asking what follows from X, right? So if X is true, if it's true that, perhaps you explain this with Einstein's experiment, if X is true, what follows from it? And it gives you a kind of a prediction. Now that prediction may or may not be testable initially. In the long term, it might be. But that's a classical philosophical thing to do. It's not doing any further observations. It's just saying, if this is true, this logically follows from it. And if it logically follows from it, we've got good reasons to think it's true. I don't know if you want to... Yes. I've left loads of messy stuff there because I don't know the okay. science. So let me, let me go back to the point about that Sabine Hosenfelder made about, you know, should you study as a scientist things which you can never even in principle observe? Perhaps there's still some space for you to spend some time studying things, even if you can't observe them. But I think most scientists who study these things do think that ultimately they would be observable. So your point about you can't see back behind the Big Bang, many people who study pre-Big Bang, they think that actually you can because there's not really something sort of big, big kind of explosion at that point. You can actually see through it. So it would kind of that their ultimate hope would be that they could actually measure it. And if they're going too far off that track, then I think it's time for, you know, their referees when they try and publish papers, their referees when they try and get research funding to say, well, hang on, where are you going with this? 
and also indeed for a wider scientific community, and they do actually the wider scientific community to be critical and say, should you really be studying these types of these types of questions? That's the issue of you know should you you know should you study something if it's not observable? Now there are other things you study which are in principle observable, but we know that the technology we have is not going to be able to sort of you know find these effects, and it could be ten years, twenty years, fifty years, a hundred years, depending how good people are in the labs at improving technology. So then you're running thought experiments instead, and actually these days there's I think another type of thing that you do, which is you run simulations. On computers, you've run very, very large simulations on computers. So you're not actually directly observing the physical world, but you're, you're, you're looking at a simulation, a complex simulation of the physical world. And for those, my personal take is I'd actually like people to elucidate quite a lot more clearly what their assumptions are and what they're trying to achieve. So if you've got a complex simulation of the universe, and it really is complex. We're talking really high performance, you know, supercomputers. You're, you're running these things for six months, a year or so. There should be a kind of clarity about what you're trying to get at. And on logic, perhaps as scientists, we're not trained, actually. As a scientist, I, I did have the opportunity to take history of philosophy, history and philosophy of science courses in Cambridge, but I was actually busy taking my physics courses and I didn't take them, unfortunately. I think it would be good to have those skills about articulating, you know, what your assumptions are, what, when will A lead to B lead to C? What can you infer from it? Sometimes people think they can do this just with their quantitative skills, but there is, I think, a, a kind of a logic sense that is missing from us. Can I ask you a follow-up question to that, actually? Sorry, I'm going to take your job. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I think that's really interesting. You talk about the, the, the um, simulations, and of course, because a lot of people sometimes, I think, excessively sceptically say that, you know, science isn't describing the real world. It's just and this terrible word just is a word if ever you hear the word just you should always have an alarm bell go off it's just creating models which does raise interesting questions about what the relationship is between a scientific model and the real world that is true but from what you're saying about how so much now is is basically around simulations which is a form of modeling what does that say for the sort of naive view of science as a purely descriptive enterprise, which is not in any way going beyond the observable facts. Because it seems, like you said, as soon as you've got a simulation, you are because you're inevitably simplifying, right, for the sake of the simulation, which means that you're not just describing the reality, you're describing those features of the reality that you have decided are important for the features of your simulation. And you could be wrong about that. Absolutely. And I think that's articulating, as a philosopher can do more clearly, what I would say about it, that we as scientists perhaps don't always, I mean, some people I'm sure do, but we could be much clearer about where the assumptions have come in. And also we could be transparent about the possibility that we have missed some terrifically important effect, right? So we're, we're inevitably trying to simulate things that we haven't observed. So we're extrapolating our knowledge from the things we have observed into regimes that we've never observed. So how do we know that there's not completely different effects over in those things, right? So we have to articulate that. We have to be clearer about that. We have to be honest about it. But then jumping across from philosophy and science into politics for a moment, if you go and present your work to a funding council and you present all of those concerns and doubts, you're probably not going to get the funding to do the simulations. So there's a political climate there which perhaps make, makes people suppress it. Now, that's about the numerical simulations. I would say there's something even deeper, which is um, even if you are making actual measurements of nature, 
the complexity of these measurements these days is such that the interpretation of the measurements also has implicit assumptions at every stage. When you're presented with, um, you know, the discovery of gravitational waves or the images, you know, from the Event Horizon Telescope, the first kind of visual images of a black hole, these things, that's not directly what comes out of an experiment, right? It's not like what you get from doing a school experiment and you just plot your graph. There's many stages of actually taking the raw data and processing it and turning it into what you're actually presenting and interpreting as the result. And there's an awful lot of assumptions that go into that. And again, we're always extrapolating, right? Because we are, we're saying, okay, we, we're going to remove the dust, for example, in an astronomical image, but we're extrapolating our knowledge of the dust in the galaxy to the dust in the wider universe, right? We always have to extrapolate our knowledge. We always have to make some, in a sense, assumptions even there. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports, and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news, and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I want to pick up on this point. You both used the term extrapolation at different points in this conversation so far. And suddenly I found myself think, found myself thinking while I was listening to you in particular, Julian, thinking, hang on a minute, I wonder if... You're going to hate this, but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wonder if another sort of definition of philosophy could actually be that philosophizing is extrapolating, right, in some senses. So when a scientist extrapolates, what they're actually doing is they're employing some sort of basal philosophy module, one might say, within what we would now call the scientific process. But actually, that's, that's actually philosophy. Because the starting point of science, even in your historical account of this, was first came philosophers, right? People who would muse about the world and try and understand it. And then science came later as this sort of pragmatic measure, like testing of the musing, of the extrapolation of that. What do you think of that? Interesting way of putting it. I mean, there's a kind of standard story sometimes offered of how the various disciplines separated themselves from philosophy over time. And I think there's something to it. It's one of those things that has become such a kind of cliche, you think you instinctively want to doubt it, but I think there's something to it. And the idea here is that as, and that's this idea of extrapolation, as certain methods of extrapolation become agreed, right, that these are the appropriate methods of doing it in this particular domain, then it doesn't mean total unanimity, but as long as it's sufficient unanimity, then that kind of goes off and it becomes its own discipline. In, in, in going back into sort of early metaphysics, what's the structure of the universe? People had people would do very basic observations, but it was all kind of very speculative, etc. And then people, yeah, with the natural sciences, it was like, no, we, we have methods. We have experimental methods, we have measurements, and we have ways of testing whether things are accurate, inaccurate. So the methodology of extrapolation of this biology, chemistry, physics becomes agreed enough. And partly it becomes agreed enough because it becomes reliable enough. If, Guess what? It turns out we can find out stuff more reliably this way than just doing it in the standard philosophical way. We can send people to the moon 
using this kind of like these methods of physics. We couldn't send anyone anywhere using the methods of spinozistic metaphysics. Okay. And that's how it works. I'm thinking there's perhaps something to it, but I haven't thought it through properly that as the methods of extrapolation become systematized and agreed, formalized, reliable, you've then got your own special science. But the flip side of that is that because actually this is only further refining the modes of extrapolation, that gives you the continuity with philosophy. And also what you're probably going to find is that with any of these particular sciences, these methods of extrapolation may work very, very well for most things. But does it mean that every question in that science is going to be answerable by those methods? And often you find not. There are still those, still those tricky, often conceptual issues or the things which don't, aren't totally amenable to, to experimental testing, which are still left over. And that perhaps gives us the overlap. Um... Well, I mean, just to sort of continue that then, in that case, you alluded to it, and I was just thinking as well about how much philosophy training does the average scientist get? I think I did one module during my master's. What about you? Did you? So I think there's very little training in philosophy. And again, some of this goes back to not quite politics, but you know, the separation that's occurred because philosophy tends to sit in humanities faculties and universities, and the science faculties are quite separated. Modern teaching is complicated enough. So if you start saying, can we send you, you know, a scientist over to take something in, in philosophy, you know, it just, gets, it, it just gets complicated. You don't get to talk to each other. But I think there is a gap there. It's also the case that philosophers, some philosophers come to science conferences. There are some meetings. But in my 20-odd year career, I've probably only been to conferences a couple of times, actually, with philosophers. So... And then, of course, there's some scientists who are very interested in philosophy, but that's not quite the same thing. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting as well, because I think that perhaps there was a time when philosophy of science, at least in the English-speaking world, was not done with a great deal of knowledge of, of science. It was done a little bit armchair, not very involved. Now, I think those, well, I understand those days really have passed, but it still very much depends on which one you're talking about. So for in interesting enough, I speak to, the, there's a philosopher of biology, Samir Okashio at Bristol. He's got a very good reputation. And I, if you speak with a lot of biologists, a lot of biologists do know his work. And he, he does go to conferences in which there are biologists and philosophers. And it does seem like there's close working together. Now, the philosophy of physics is huge, right? There's a lot of philosophy of physics. And a lot of theoretical physics is obviously philosophical. But I don't know, what you've said has made, reminded me of this, that in the past when I've been discussing with physicists about philosophy, a lot of them are very, very um, polite and very positive about philosophy of physics and sort of agree that there's this huge philosophical dimension to physics and everything. And I've asked the question, so which philosophers of physics are really informing the work of theoretical physicists? And often sort of they can't name one <laughs> so it seems a bit weird the philosophers of physics really do know their physics these days they really do they you can't get away with being a top level of philosopher physicist without knowing your physics but it sounds like still at the front line they're not really working alongside they're almost like these parallel tracks is that right i think it is and i think it's i think it's about almost the, the level of specialized knowledge that there is in dif disciplines so <clears throat> theoretical physics is not one discipline it's, you know, it's spread over hundreds of different conferences and people will be focused on some particular phenomena and what they want to discuss in the conference as a scientist, they want to discuss the details of that pheno phenomena and persuading those scientists just to go to a conference in a neighboring area 
they won't be willing to do because they're just really focused on, on pushing forward these things. So they'd almost, I think, see engaging with philosophers as a luxury. That would be something to do in the eighth day of the week if they had an eighth day of the week. They just don't have time to do it. And yeah, I, I think that's probably... So it's not that it isn't valued or respected. I've never, I've never felt that. I think it is valued and respected. It's more people just don't have time to engage with it. And yet, I personally, I should be honest here and say that I'm actually quite an outlier. I'm quite weird because I have side interest in writing in sociology. And um, I also use my theoretical physics to model finance. So I'm, I'm quite an interdisciplinary person by, by, by how I like to work. But I would actually like to see much more of people coming in and you know, that you by default have somebody sort of coming into a big plenary conference and giving an update on what's been going on in the world of philosophy of science, philosophy of physics. But one thing that interests me about that is that sometimes people think that the this lack of co-working, as it were, is in, its, in itself damning. And it isn't necessarily. So I think it was Richard Feynman who said something like this famous thing that philosophy of physics is as useful to, or philosophy of science is useful to scientists as ornithology is to birds, right? And um, and Alan Sokal, who, who famously did that hoax, he's a physicist, said that he didn't see this as being a critical comment because ornithology is not supposed to be useful to birds, right? If you think the purpose of ornithology is to help birds, you've misunderstood ornithology. In the same way, there's a, a lot of philosophy of physicists. It would be nice, and maybe there are bits of philosophy of physics which are of as used to physicists, but it's not necessarily doing the same thing. It's, it's trying to find the way to conceptualise and understand what physics is and what its findings mean, which may or may not be useful. So I think that when people kind of point to the so-called uselessness of philosophy of science in actually helping scientists, that may be a misguided way of looking at it. It's not necessarily meant to help scientists do their work. It's to help us understand what science is and how to interpret scientific findings, which scientists may or may not be interested in. It's interesting. I mean, I found myself thinking just a moment ago, as I said, I'm a biologist, and you've both alluded to the fact that physics may be by virtue of the how difficult it can be at times to observe it, maybe is a little bit closer to philosophies and already has quite a strong connection between the sort of philosophy of physics and theoretical physics and whatnot. In biology, I don't think I've been to a single conference where anyone's ever even mentioned the philosophy of, and like, it's just not a thing. And so then I found myself thinking, gosh, maybe this is humble pie time for me. Perhaps we sort of inadvertently learn some rudimentary philosophy on the job, as it were, and we're told we're doing science and actually what we're learning. Because of course, hypothesizing is a big part of our training, right? When I got my doctorate, my, my doctorate in, of philosophy, I got a DPhil, right? Philosophy was in the titles. It's one of those quirks of science. Um, you have to learn how to hypothesize. But suddenly I thought, gosh, maybe we're sort of learning to do this Without, in an absence of philosophers, it's like almost like a cottage industry. As it were, where you sort of pick it up as you go and you use it. And you don't think anything of it. Whereas actually, I'm sure when people study philosophy, you get there must be rigor and methodologies and things, which perhaps could actually be quite helpful to to scientific training in terms of hypothesizing or extrapolating and all these sorts of things. I do think in most disciplines. I don't want to get too harsh on specialization because you have to have specialization these days. There's things have got to a level where you can't just be the generalist. So specialization is not in of itself a bad thing. But I do think there's a big trick being missed in academe, which is that pretty much every discipline is doing things that other people do in other disciplines a bit better at time to time. So like history, 
history is something that everyone's doing a bit of history. A lot of scientists are doing a bit of history, philosophers are doing a bit of history, but they're not doing it. There are people who are specialists in this who have probably got things to, to know, psychology, sociology, anthropology. And I, I think that it's rather than trying to compete for who's best and like say, oh, you need to learn from the philosophers, more cross-fertilization would be good. So I, 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 I'm pitching for a job which hasn't been created, which is uh, there should be like a professor of, they should have chairs or whatever of synoptic studies at universities whose job it is to organize colloquia and seminars in which they bring people together from different disciplines to spot the connections they haven't even seen themselves and just to get that cross-fertilization. Um, it's not to, it's not that they shouldn't still be specialists, but if you're not, so many times things, again, the example I give, which is the most embarrassing, I think, for philosophy is um, maybe John Searle wrote a book called, and I'm going to get the name wrong, something like The Construction of Social Reality or something. And I interviewed him about it. And he was saying, I'm inventing this, 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 this whole new field of philosophy, which is how we construct social reality. And uh, my co-editor at the Philosopher's Magazine at the time was a sociology PhD. And he says, this is interesting because 25 years ago, there's a book called The Social Construction of Reality uh, by these two sociologists. I'm not suggesting that everything Searle had to say had already been said by these people, but he was approaching the subject as though it were virgin territory and it wasn't virgin territory. Now, had there been this more discussion between the disciplines, he probably could have brought something new and original to this as a philosopher but bringing on, building on what had been done by sociologists. Instead, it was just like, hey, this is new. I've invented it. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I personally love this idea of getting the philosophers to become our interdisciplinary bridges. Because, of course, I again, I don't know about physics, but in biology, my gosh, interdisciplinarity is being pushed really hard and everyone's being encouraged to sort of cross fields and bridge and all this sort of stuff. I like the idea of letting you guys do that. Like that, that you specialize in it. Just to summarize what I think we've covered in this part, I think we've said that philosophy perhaps historically was the starting point of many specializations that we now call science, that its approaches and methods have definitely informed parts of what we now call the scientific method, that there's definitely roles for engaging with philosophers more, but also that philosophers should come potentially into our spaces more, and that we're going to totally leave interdisciplinarity to you guys going forward. So that's what my takeaways were. Excellent head to head there. Yeah, that was that was fantastic. If you liked listening to this week's episode, which hopefully you did, and you like philosophy for our times in general, then don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. <laughs>